Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Let's hear about this episode's topic. I'm the mom of an 18-year-old who's about to go off to college, and um, we've started to talk about whether it's a good idea for her to get on birth control or not. So I was hoping you guys could help us out with some of the options that are there and maybe the risks associated with it so we can figure out um, what would be best for her. First, I just want to say good for you guys for having that open conversation before going to college. It can be a hard one to have. Um, and I'm really happy we're going to spend today discussing the very important topic of different birth control methods. Mm-hmm. We know that it's critical that pediatricians counsel their teen patients on sexual health, the importance of delaying sexual onset, and that abstinence is the only 100% effective method for preventing pregnancy as well as sexually transmitted infections. But we also know that teens do have sex, they do get sexually transmitted infections, and they do get pregnant unintentionally. Right. And that is why comprehensive sexual health counseling and access to reliable information about contraception is so, so important. Data shows that nearly half of U.S. high school students between the age of 15 and 19 have reported ever having sex. Although the teen birth rates have declined over time, each year there are approximately 750,000 teen pregnancies, with more than 80% of those being unplanned. We also continue to see large disparities across racial and ethnic groups, with Hispanic and black teens having almost double the rate of teen pregnancy compared to white teens. What this tells us is that we really need to do a better job of counseling teens on their contraceptive options and sexual health and providing access to this type of care in the office. And while we completely understand that this is a very difficult topic for parents of teenagers, it's also a really critical part of their health. And really, they need to be aware of all of their options for protecting themselves from unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted infections. We encourage all parents to have open discussions with their teens about sexual health, and we have more strategies for doing this in our two-part series on talking to teens about relationships and sex with clinical psychologist Dr. Brandy Lyles. But today we're going to specifically delve into the topic of contraception, what methods are available, how they're used, and what the risks and benefits of each may be. We hope that by hearing all of this information, both you and your teen will make an informed decision about contraception if and when that time comes for them. Mm -hmm. And before we get into the nitty-gritty of contraception, I want to talk briefly about confidentiality laws for teenagers. Yeah, so confidentiality for adolescent patients is really important because it encourages them to discuss and access care for sensitive topics and behaviors, and they may not feel comfortable discussing this in front of their caregiver. So usually around 13 years of age, your child's health care provider will ask that you, the parent, step out of the room for part of their annual physical. 
Mm-hmm. I lovingly refer to this part of the visit as teen time. Um, and depending on the state you live in, the teenager's right to consent to their own contraception may differ. And we'll provide a list of this on our website. But here in California, teenagers are able to request birth control without the permission of their parent. And of course, even that can feel hard for parents to think their kids are going behind their back to request something like this. So um, I specifically always encourage teenagers to have an open and honest conversation with their parent about this. But there are some times that they just don't feel that's possible. And so it's important that, that they still feel like they can access this care. As pediatricians, we strive to provide confidential services in the clinic for teens. But if they are under their parents' medical insurance, they need to be aware that it's possible that any laboratory tests or medications they may end up on medical bills that their parents will see. Mm-hmm. And so really the only way to ensure total confidentiality is to refer to certain clinics. The big one that most people will know of is Planned Parenthood, and they can operate without insurance and make sure that teenagers have access to this um, vital contraception and sexual health care. Mm-hmm. So your provider should be familiar with these clinics in your specific area, so you can always ask them. And many teenagers are initiated on contraceptions many years before they're even thinking about becoming sexually active um, for reasons other than protection against pregnancy. Because these medications are also used as some of the first-line treatments for women who have really painful periods or really heavy menstrual bleeding. They're also really, really good for treatment for acne in teenagers or unwanted hair growth in women called hirsutism. When we talk about methods of contraception, we will discuss how effective they are by discussing each method's failure rate. And the failure rate looks at the percentage of people using this method of contraception that get pregnant within the first year while they're on it. Mm -hmm. And failure rate is looked at for both perfect use, meaning the person takes the contraception exactly as prescribed, and then it looks at something called typical use, which is how most people actually use it. So if we're talking about hormonal birth control pills, like maybe you don't take it at the exact same time every day, or maybe you skip one every once in a while. So much more what the typical person would would do. For some of the forms of contraception, like the long-acting methods we will discuss, the perfect use and typical use are the same. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Lena, what are the most commonly used methods of contraception in teens? So the most commonly used methods are the male condom, the withdrawal method, combined oral contraceptives or birth control pills. And unfortunately, with the exception of the birth control pill, which works pretty well, um, these most commonly used methods are not our most effective methods at preventing pregnancy. So the male condom has a perfect use failure rate of 2%. And so that's pretty good. But with typical use, it increases to 18%, and that's not very good. (laughs) So this doesn't mean that we're recommending against condom use because all teens should be counseled that they should use a condom plus a secondary pregnancy protection with all sexual intercourse. Right, and that's because we know that really abstinence and condoms are the only methods that protect against the transmission of sexually transmitted infections. So that's critical. Mm Mm-hmm. The withdrawal method, which describes removing the penis before ejaculation occurs, is a very poor method of contraception with a 22% typical use failure rate. 
I know that's like one in four teens getting pregnant within a year if they use this method alone, which is absolutely not okay if we're looking to prevent pregnancy. So let's talk about the actually commonly used and effective method in teenagers, which is going to be the combined hormonal contraceptive pill, which I'm going to refer to as the birth control pill from here on out. Right. The pill. The pill. (laughs) Right. So birth control pills have a typical use failure rate of 9%, although this may be slightly higher if you looked at teenagers alone since adherence might be lower. Right. So birth control pills, excluding the progestin-only pill, which we will talk about a little bit later, all contain two different types of hormones, which are important in controlling the menstrual cycles. And those hormones are estrogen and progesterone. Um, Usually we're going to see this as ethanol estradiol, and we have a low-dose starting range that we normally start with. And then the progesterone component is going to be Levonorgestrel or norgestimate as the two most common progestins in the the birth control pill. I appreciate you taking on those pronunciations instead of me since I'm not familiar with those. (laughs) So typically you get a monthly pack that contains three weeks of active hormonal pills and then the one week is placebo pills. And during the week of placebo pills, That's when you get your period, and the reason that the placebo pills are included is to get that routine, right, to try to increase adherence. You take a pill every every single day. day. At the same time, exactly. Mm -hmm. And there are so many formulations of birth control pills, it might take a while to find the type that's right for you. So there are monophasic, which means that they have the exact same amount of hormone in every um, active pill. There's a triphasic, um, which you may know as the term like orthotricycline or if it has a tricyclic in the name. Um, and that basically decreases the amount of hormone that's present each week until the placebo week. So you may start with one level and then go down slightly and down slightly and then off. Now there's a really nice option to do extended cycling of these birth control pills, which means that you only take active pills and you skip the placebo um, altogether for three months, and then you really only have to get a period like every four months or so, four times a year. And that can be really helpful for teens who have heavy periods, severe pain with periods, um, or other other things that, that being on a more continuous hormone is beneficial for. So what are some of the reasons you would not prescribe a birth control pill to a teenager? So some of the most common contraindications for birth control pills are specifically the combined hormonal contraceptives that have both estrogen and progesterone, are severe or uncontrolled high blood pressure, liver disease, If they have valvular heart disease, one of the more common ones I see in my teenagers is migraine that has aura, which means like you you see like spotty lights or visual changes when you get your migraines or a history of blood clots or a known blood clotting disorder um, or complications of diabetes. So I'm sure many of our listeners have seen commercials or heard commercials on the radio from law firms saying that if you were on a birth control pill and suffered a blood clot, call and you may be entitled to compensation. While, of course, you know, blood clots, that's scary, right? And that's a significant side effect to be aware of. But it's also important to know the actual data and risk and put this into context. 
So let's run the numbers on this. The risk of developing a blood clot increases from 1 per 10,000 people for those not on any hormonal birth control to 3 to 4 per 10,000 people while on birth control pills. Now, in comparison, the incidence of blood clots associated with pregnancy and the postpartum period is 10 to 20 per 10,000. So the risk of getting a blood clot from a birth control pill is still much lower than your risk of getting a blood clot while pregnant. So it's important to know that this risk of blood clot comes from the estrogen component of the birth control pill. So those forms that are progesterone only should not have that risk. Right, right. And it is interesting to look at the numbers that way when you think, you know, okay, well, at least we're preventing pregnancy. So if someone had a true risk, pregnancy is going to be much more of a risk factor for them than being on this pill. Absolutely. But of course, your healthcare provider should counsel you on how to identify symptoms concerning for a possible blood clot. And this would include leg swelling and pain, shortness of breath, severe headaches. And if you're taking birth control pills, or really, even if you're not, and you experience any of these symptoms, Mm -hmm. you should contact your health provider immediately. Some other side effects of birth control pills may include headache, nausea, and breast tenderness. And although so many teens come into my office fearful that the birth control pill is going to cause them to gain weight, um, because that's one of the common myths, the studies looking at this have actually not found a significant association with weight gain and specifically the oral combined hormonal contraceptive pill. We'll talk about some of the other side effects in a second. Um, And some other benefits of being on a a birth control pill is going to be lighter periods, improved skin like we talked about, and really over time it leads to a decreased risk of ovarian and endometrial cancers. So preventing cancer, that's that's a benefit. (laughs) That is a benefit. Yeah, so something else to keep in mind when trying to decide if a birth control pill is right for you is if you can reliably remember to take a daily pill. Right, this is a big one. Um, Setting an alarm on your cell phone or using an app, there's some really good ones like the Bedsider app, which we'll link on our website, can be very helpful. And then we've also posted instructions on what to do if you miss a pill, but it is important to know if you miss more than three days in a row, then the medication is no longer effective at preventing pregnancy and you need to use a backup option. So we're discussing how to remember to take a pill every day, that this can be very challenging for anyone, but maybe especially for teens. So maybe now we can talk about the long-acting methods of contraception where you don't have to take a pill every day. Right. We refer to them as LARC or long-acting reversible contraception. Um, So this would be the IUDs, the intrauterine device, the progestin implant or Nexplanon, which is placed just under the skin in the upper arm. It might surprise some people that the IUDs, the intrauterine devices, are the most commonly used birth control uh, device worldwide, and they have a typical use failure rate of less than 1%. These are small, flexible, T-shaped devices, and they're inserted into the uterus through the cervix with a small string that comes out, and this is to facilitate future removal. They need to be inserted in the office by somebody who's trained, so a trained healthcare provider. There are currently five IUDs approved in the United States, four progestin um, or hormonal IUDs, which are the Mirena, the Kylina, the Lyletta, Skyla, And those range, depending on what type, um, and are approved for anywhere between 3 and 
six years, um, although there is research supporting that some of them are actually good for longer. There's one um, non-hormonal copper IUD that's approved for 10 years, but research actually shows it's good for up to 12 years. And the nice thing about all IUDs is that there have been many studies looking at this method, and it shows a very rapid return to fertility after they're removed, so you can get pregnant right away. Contraindications or reason not to place an IUD include current pregnancy. But you can use them um, as emergency contraception within five days of unprotected intercourse. You can use the copper IUD for that, and there's some early studies using the Liletta for that as well. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about emergency contraception later in the podcast. Other contraindications to placement are current active sexually transmitted infection or cervicitis, allergy to any component of the IUD, Wilson's disease, which is a rare disease of copper overload, and this is just for the copper IUD. Advantages to having an IUD are that they're obviously very effective methods, less than 1%, can't get much better than that. Um, as a younger person or someone who's busy and, and it's hard to take remember to take a pill every day, you can kind of just set it and forget it. With the hormonal IUDs, many women experience a decrease in their menstrual cycle. And specifically with the Mirena, one study looked at this and about 20% of people that had the Mirena stopped having a menstrual cycle over time. So that can be a plus, a big plus. <laughs> The most commonly reported side effects are pain and cramping at insertion and for some time after, irregular spotting, heavier periods for the copper IUD, and although it's rare, there is also the risk of expulsion of the device. And then the next most popular method of the long-acting reversible contraceptions, like we talked about, is the progestin implant. Um, the currently approved implant is called Nexplanon, and it has a typical use failure rate also of less than 1%. It's placed in the upper arm and can stay in place for three years, although there are ongoing studies that show that it is likely safe to stay in for five. It's placed in the upper arm below the biceps and is about the size of a matchstick, so it's pretty small. Do you insert these in your office, Dr. Lena? I do, yeah. And, you know, it's a quick procedure. The The teens come in. We kind of um, numb up this area. Like if you flex and you feel that little like bicipital groove kind of where your, your muscle comes up, we go under that. We use some lidocaine to numb it up. And it's really, really quick. It maybe takes 10 or 15 minutes and you can feel the implant in your arm after it's placed. Um, and so it's a really nice option for teenagers, especially those who have not yet been sexually active and may not feel comfortable with the slightly more invasive procedure of placing an IUD into the cervix. And I had the opportunity to observe Dr. Lena demonstrate exactly where in the biceps this would be. So, um, of course, our listeners can't do that. But if you want to see exactly her visually demonstrate that, <laughs> please make an appointment with Dr. Lena. <laughs> or I can post it. I will post it on the, <laughs> on the blog. <laughs> okay. So, contraindications to placement would be any progestin-sensitive liver disease or an allergy to any component in the implant. Yeah, and if girls have very irregular periods to begin with, um, they should be counseled that they may see an increase in unpredictable spotting. The most common reason for um, people wanting to discontinue using the implant is this irregular spotting, but we say to give it at least three months for it to normalize. Um, it can also cause headaches. It can cause some scar tissue buildup in the area of placement, 
or migration of the implant within the arm, which can make it more difficult for removal. While the IUD and the implant are the two forms of true long-acting reversible contraception, there are other methods that don't involve having to remember to take a pill every day, right? Mm-hmm. And one of those methods is called the depot shot, which is a progestin-only injectable contraceptive. Um, and this is a single like shot, essentially, every 13 weeks. It has a 6% typical use failure rate, which is pretty good. Advantages of the depot shot include improvement in teens with heavy menstrual bleeding and cramping. For many individuals, they will stop having their period altogether while on this um, form of birth control. Because of the decreased bleeding, it is protective against iron deficiency anemia and endometrial cancer. And because it's another progestin-only medicine, it can be used in teens who can't use estrogen-containing contraceptives, for example, if they're increased risk for, for having blood clots. There um, has also been some evidence to show Depot decreases the frequency of seizures and sickle cell crisis in teens with these conditions. The disadvantages and side effects of the Depo shot can include headache, weight gain. So unfortunately, this is one where there is really an association with weight gain. Um, An average of five pounds in the first year and eight pounds in the first two years. So not super, super significant, but present. And then one of the risks that many providers worry about is the reduction in bone mineral density and possibly putting the users at risk for osteoporosis later in life. Studies that have looked at this did show a return um, to baseline after discontinuing this, Um, but you definitely want to counsel any um, female that's going on the depot shot about bone health, right, so that they should be getting daily intake of at least um, 1,300 milligrams of calcium, 600 units of vitamin D, and doing regular weight-bearing exercise to keep up their bone health. So I think we covered the more common methods of contraception that teens use, but maybe we could briefly touch on some of the less frequently used methods. Definitely. So there's the vaginal ring. The brand name's Nuva Ring. It has both estrogen and progesterone. So it has the same kind of contraindications and side effect profile as the combined hormonal birth control pills. And with some additional local symptoms of vaginal discharge or discomfort, you insert it into the vagina. It's kind of placed similarly like a tampon, and you can leave it in for three weeks and then remove it for the week of your period. And this is another method that you can use that extended cycling where you keep the ring in for a full four weeks and then just place a new one without um, getting your period. That's totally fine and safe, um, but check with your doctor. And then there's actually enough hormone to last up to five weeks. So if you forget (laughs) to change it, that's okay. Just change it out as soon as you remember. Okay. And then there is the birth control patch. It um, also has both estrogen and progesterone. It can be placed on the upper arm, the abdomen, the back, or the buttocks. There may be slightly more estrogen in the patch than other birth control methods, so there's a slightly higher risk for the complications of blood clots and increased risk of nausea, which are common side effects from estrogen. It has the same side effects and contraindications as the other combined hormonal methods, plus skin irritation or changes in skin color at the site of placement. It may also have slightly lower efficacy for women weighing more than 198 pounds. 
Yeah, I wonder. I guess that's what the the study showed. It's just an oddly specific weight. So why not just round up to 200? <laughs> yeah, so that's it's 90 kilograms. And the theory is that higher levels of body fat may make it harder for your body to absorb the hormones as effectively. And then the dosing may not be correct. Mm, that makes sense. There's also a progestin-only pill. The name for that is the mini pill. It has a typical use failure rate of 7%, although I would definitely suspect higher in teenagers. Um, It's similar to a birth control pill in that it's taken every day, but it only contains progesterone, no estrogen. And it works primarily by thickening cervical mucus, and it does not inhibit ovulation. So it just makes it harder for sperm to get through to fertilize the egg. I never prescribe this in teenagers, or I never have, because you have to be really, really, really good about the time you take it every day. So even if you take it just three hours late, you need to use a backup form of protection for 48 hours. So, I mean, I don't know if I could do that. I don't think I could do that. Yeah, it's not very practical, is it? (laughs) It's not practical. So it is nice in certain situations, um, but definitely not my first line for teens. Methods such as the diaphragm, female condoms, spermicides, these are used so infrequently these days that we won't be touching on them during this discussion. But we'll provide links to resources on the blog if people are interested. And I do want to spend a couple minutes discussing emergency contraception. So it's Of course, important to remember that this is not a regular method of birth control, so you should not rely on this um, as your primary method, but it can be used if sexual intercourse occurred without birth control or if your primary method failed, such as the condom broke. So emergency contraception can be taken up to five days after unprotected intercourse to prevent pregnancy. The sooner that this is taken, the more likely it is to work as they work to inhibit ovulation. There are three types of emergency contraceptive pills available in the U.S., um, one of which is available at the pharmacy without a prescription. Um, You can also ask your doctor if they're comfortable writing a prescription for you so that you can have one on hand should you ever need to use it. We hope that this discussion was informative about the different methods of contraception that are most commonly used in teens. So let's summarize the main points in this episode. Comprehensive sexual health counseling is so important in teenagers. Um, It's ideally a conversation that should be started early and by a trusted adult in the teenager's life. While it should be stressed that delayed sexual onset and abstinence is the only way to ensure avoidance of pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections, counseling teens about their options when it comes to accessing contraception is important for their health and their future. The most effective methods for reversible contraception in teens are the long-acting forms, such as the IUD and the progestin implant. These require a procedure and in-office visit, but are great methods if you're prone to kind of wanting to set it and forget it. The combined oral contraceptive pill is another popular option for teens, and there are many formulations available, so it's important to discuss which would work best with your medical provider. Other available contraception includes the depot shot, the vaginal ring, or the hormonal patch. For all of the above methods, there are contraindications to use and potential benefits, which is why doing your research and talking to your healthcare provider is so important. Um, And remember, if you're on an effective birth control, condoms are the only reliable way to prevent transmission of sexually transmitted infections. 
If your method of contraception fails or you have unintentional, unprotected intercourse, emergency contraception is available at your local pharmacy or through your physician, but it should be used as soon as possible. We'd like to thank Dr. Ravi Nakrani, an obstetrician and gynecologist here at UC Davis Medical Center, for reviewing today's episode, although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. And, of course, there are a lot of birth control (laughs) jokes. (laughs) I'm sure there are. Let's hear it. Did you know that scientists have found that sunblock is actually 50% effective as birth control? No. Why? Well, because it only blocks the suns. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I get it. I get it. (laughs) You know, I always overshare on the podcast, and so I will continue to do that. Um, As a young woman, before I was ready to um, have children or before I was married, I was on the Depo shot, which actually worked really, really well for me. Um, You do have to remember to go into the doctor every three months to get an injection, but it's a little bit easier than remembering to take a pill every day. Um, And... I did have that glorious side effect of um, losing your period, so that was a plus. And then as I got older and um, my routine got a little bit nicer and I was a little bit more reliable, I switched over to the birth control pill, which I was on for many, many years. And it really allowed me to be able to reach all of my goals, right? Go to get through college, apply to medical school, (laughs) go through medical school, go through residency. And so I just feel so thankful that I had access to um, these things. And I didn't, um, not that you can't continue to go on and do all of these things as a parent. I have seen some amazing women do that, but it, it makes it a little bit easier to be able to delay having a family in order to accomplish your, your goals as a woman, a woman. The depot shot, that's intramuscular, right? Yes. So does it hurt? Um, Not any more than like your routine vaccination would. At least I don't remember it. It was quite a while ago now, but um, most kids do do really well with it. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.